to another episode of the Mr. Barton Maths Podcast with me, Craig Barton, a show where I interview people who interest and inspire me from the world of education. This time around, I spoke to Trevor Senior. Trevor is AQA's Chief Examiner for the Maths GCSE. Now, as those of you teaching maths in the UK in the last couple of years will have experienced, there has been a tremendous amount of uncertainty, anxiety and expectation surrounding the new maths GCSE. It's kind of been like awaiting the new series of Game of Thrones, only with slightly fewer dragons, but possibly slightly more violent twists. Now, two years on, we have finally had the first set of students through and, at the time of recording at least, are awaiting the inaugural set of results. So I thought it would be interesting to talk to one of the people behind the creation of the exams and so it proved to be. In a wide-ranging interview, we covered the following things and more. How did the papers for the 2017 Maths GCSE get written from start to finish? How many people are involved? Did the fact it was a new specification change the process? What was the hardest part of the writing process? How were the order of the questions decided? What role do multiple choice questions play? What makes a good question and what makes a bad question? What are the considerations when writing contextual questions? What are some of, some of Trevor's favourite questions he's ever written? How does the marking process happen? What makes a question particularly tricky to mark? When in the whole process, as chief examiner, is Trevor at his most nervous? How are grade boundaries set? And finally, if Trevor could change the maths GCSE in any way, what would he do? Well, if you teach GCSE Maths now, or are planning to in the future, or if you have any interest whatsoever about how questions and exams are written, then I think you're going to love this one. Trevor is a knowledgeable, experienced and all-round superb guest. This episode is also a nice companion piece to my interview with Daisy Christodoulou, where we focused in-depth on assessment, and indeed I'll discuss more about this in my takeaway at the end of the interview. Just the usual desperate plea that if you enjoy these interviews and you have a spare minute, then please give the podcast a rating and a quick review on iTunes. It really does make a difference and mean a lot. And thank you so much to those of you who already have. I'll tell you what, a new podcast seems to have entered the education charts this week. The Sexplanations podcast. I'm not sure my three-hour discussions of lesson planning misconceptions and the subtleties of assessment objectives will appeal to their audience, so I think I'm going to need to rely on my own. Thank you so much for continuing to listen. One thing I want to make clear before we get cracking. This interview is being done with the very kind permission of AQA, and I am extremely grateful for that. The interview gives an insight into the work and personal views of a highly experienced senior examiner. But what Trevor says does not necessarily reflect in full the views and processes of AQA. Anyway, without further ado, let me introduce Trevor. I really hope you enjoyed this one as much as I did. I am sure you will. And as ever, I will see you on the other side. Okay, Trevor, so we're going to start, as we always do, with our math speed dating questions. So, question number one, what is your favourite number and why? 
Well, I did once learn the value of pi to about 50 decimal places, but not sure why. I suppose I thought it was a good idea at the time. Flipping it, 50, 50, 50, 50, Yeah. Uh, 1001 is interesting, a product of three primes, 7 times 11 times 13. But to be honest, I really don't have a favourite number. I always find 7 interesting, as for example, if you used an exam question, the success rate drops. All right, okay. <laughs> Tell me a bit more about that. Uh, it's just a fact. Basically, kids don't like sevens, and uh, so so they they make more mistakes with sevens than any other number. You're joking, and like so, not just kind of question seven, but if a seven appears in some kind of in, in the yeah. calculation of a question, that's right. Yeah, drops about ten percent. Flipping it, I'm saying that's the best fact I've ever heard on this podcast, Trevor. <laughs> that's, that's a very strong start. That's incredible, that. Um, and just, just on that, like you wouldn't take something like that into account when writing questions, would you? Uh, you certainly would, because if you think the paper's a bit easy, you might change the numbers to put that in, or if you think it's too hard, you might take that out. Flipping X7, that is absolutely incredible, that. I, I like that. Um, question number two, then. Uh, what was your favourite topic in maths as a student? Well, I always liked algebra, but particularly like numerical work, because I always liked to learn the quick ways of doing things. The, the quirky facts always fascinated me. For example, adding the numerators and adding the denominators of two fractions always gives a fraction between the two. So, for example, half and three quarters, four sixes between a half and three quarters. Things like that always fascinated me. Nice, flipping heck. And um, how far did you go with your maths in, in school, Trevor? Was it um, A-level and then university degree as well? Yeah, A-level maths, further maths degree, yeah. Nice, maths all the way, I like all it. All the way, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, and if you weren't involved in education and examining, what, what what else would you like to do? Well, I think I'm a bit too old to be thinking about this <laughs> one now. But, but if I was younger, perhaps something to do with aviation, as I've got a private pilot's licence, so maybe air traffic controller. Who knows? Flipping out nice, and a few bearings coming into play there. That's superb. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> and, and can you just talk us through your, your career to date then, Trevor? How did it all start and where are you now? Well, I worked in a variety of schools. I was head of maths in two of them. Started an examiner marking exam papers in 1984 on a recommendation from somebody who was already a marker in the same school. I did this for a number of years, then worked my way up becoming a team leader, monitoring the marking of other examiners, offering support particularly for other new starters. Next I applied for and was appointed to a principal examiner role. This role is now more commonly split into two roles lead assessment writer responsible for writing the paper and lead examiner responsible for leading the marking and ensuring a consistent standard is applied. In round about 2000 I was appointed as chief examiner initially for the new modular specification at that time but then for the linear as well responsible for the specification and the work of the lead assessment writers and lead examiners. And that brings us to the present day. <laughs> Flipping heck, jeez! And am I right in thinking so? Your your role specifically for GCSE, and is there equivalent? Is there your equivalent for A level as well? Yeah, it's, uh, I I'm solely GCSE. There's plenty of work there. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Well, that brings us nicely on to the, the first series of things I want to talk to you about, and that's that's the actual writing of exams. So, uh, firstly, Trevor, can you tell me when did the process for writing uh, the summer 2017 GCSE series of maths exams begin? 
Well, it's a long cycle. It was almost immediately after the specification and the specimen papers were approved or accredited. So around summer, autumn of 2015, this started with a lot of planning as alongside the actual papers. We were also busy writing and producing sets of practice papers and trying to ensure that the same standards were achieved for both, which is no mean task. (laughs) (laughs) And was was it a lot different than it has been in previous years with the fact that it is a new specification? It was, uh, and also with changes to procedures at, at, at AQA. The old model of one person writing each paper is now gone, and item writers are used. That is, people who write individual questions uh, along with a mark scheme for those questions. These questions are then collated into papers by a lead assessment writer or lead assessment writers, and the aim is to ensure consistency of standards across the papers for each tier. Oh, sorry, Trevor. So, no, I was Go just going to say, so so in the past, it was literally one person writing an entire paper. But now right. it now. How, how, so how many people are involved now? Uh, well, I'll come to that in a minute. But uh, sure. there's, there's more before oh, I get flip there. It Go for it. Go for it. Uh, the requirements for the new specification obviously are less flexible than the old specifications because there are more detailed assessment objectives to cover. So a more detailed assessment grid is used to record coverage for the series and over time. We were and are committed to achieving comparable demand across the papers, ramping demand as you work through a paper, fewer words, starting with multi-choice questions. Essentially, we had off-qual rules which were challenging and then on top of that, we had our own objectives which made for some interesting debates. Also, we had the challenge of AO1 marks in problem-solving questions, meaning fewer straightforward questions. We had new content at each tier. We had more marks, 240 compared with 175 on old linear. Uh, simple context needing to be asked in a more demanding way. We had also been developing the idea of reducing wasted marks, i.e. marks where students don't score. By that, I mean, suppose a question is three steps and an answer. Previously, we might have given four marks in total, three method marks, and one mark for the correct answer. What we found was that very few would score three marks if they had the full method. Invariably, they went on to the correct answer. So we rolled the last two marks together to make it a three-mark question, and this tended to give a better weight into the value of that question within the paper. Flipping, I mean, Trevor, this sounds an absolute nightmare trying to trying to <laughs> write this. What was the like? What was the hardest bit of it? Because I, for me as a teacher, I remember when the when the um, when all the material came out for the new GCSE, as you say, back in 2015. For me, it was interpreting what on earth it all meant. Because some of the some of the kind of um, objectives that were, were laid out were were rather vague. Was it difficult for you as an awarding body when when writing materials to interpret them as well, or was there another part of the process that was more challenging? Uh, that was that was very challenging um, uh, because individuals had different opinions as to how to interpret them and it, we had to get clarification on, on a lot of it and it, it became a, a major hurdle, if you like. Cause I, re- I was say, oh, sorry, Trevor, sorry. I was just going to say, I, I, I remember when it first came out, everyone was saying, oh, flipping out, mechanics is on it now, you've got to know all your SUVAT stuff. Then it was, oh, calculus is on there now because it's all about turning points. So was it a case that you're reading this and thinking, flipping out, what's going on here? So then writing a question, sending it to Ofqual and saying, is this appropriate or is it kind of a phone call? How, how does that process of clarification happen? It, it's through meetings and, and briefings. 
between all awarding bodies um, and through discussions with, within AQA for, for our particular papers. It isn't so much the content that's, that was the problem. The assessment objectives were the more challenging because there were so many of them and so many bullet points and each bullet point had to be covered. <laughs> And what, so what, again, on those um, assessment objectives, can you just clarify, Trevor, what, what's the requirement there? And, uh, and how, how do you go about meeting that requirement when putting a paper together? Well, we have an assessment grid, uh, which I'll, I'll go into later, but uh, uh, basically we have to cover each bullet point of the assessment objectives. There's one exception where it's not on foundation tier uh, within each series and, uh, and there are requirements for proportions of certain assessment grids. One, some have got to be covered more than others, and and, and such like. Uh, so, so in the end, basically, it's a bit like a jigsaw. <laughs> as as, it, as in all jigsaws, often the the hardest pieces to get in are the ones at the end to make the whole thing fit. Uh, so. You know. Flipping. And so just, so just going back to this kind of question writing process, and you, you contrasted in the past where it's it's one person writing each paper. That must have been a hell of a lot easier, right? To, to one person sat down writing a paper so you can make sure you, you, your content spread the right amount, your all your assessment objectives are spread. And also, you get kind of a better flow through the paper, I would imagine. And so what, what, what are the challenges now when, when more people are involved in writing? Well... There were advantages and disadvantages with the earlier system. The, the disadvantage is there's always a danger that one paper is a lot harder than another paper. Uh, two different writers have different takes on things. And, and also there's always the worry about overlap of topics and, and such like. Um, but again, the, the, the new specification with all the extra content means you've a lot to go at, but you've also a lot to cover. Uh, so it's it swings and roundabouts basically. Flipping, flipping. I can so so just talk me through this with the with the current process as it is. So you've got a team of writers all writing questions, and are they are they given tasks to say like, can you write me something that covers percentages? Can you write me something on fractions, or is it can you write me an AO one question that covers this specific objective? How how do you task people with with writing them? Well, we we tend to do it in blocks so that. People know that they're writing at a certain level of demand at a certain time, which uh, and and basically, when we review the questions, we we look for things like overlap and and such like, and and eliminate questions that way or save them for another day. Uh, sh- should I talk you through how the current series got written? Basically? Oh yeah, def- probably definitely. It. Yeah, definitely. Well, before the writing can begin, there's lots of planning deciding who writes what, how many writers to use, who to use as reviewers, there's the deadlines, the dates for meetings, etc. So the writing for the 2017 papers was mainly the work of three people, yourself being one of them, with two others in, involved directly at each stage, so that makes five in total. So the, the other two, the reviser and the chair of examiners, were involved in reviewing and checking and a further panel of reviewers and scrutineers are used at various stages so that people are looking at questions, some having seen them before and seen how they've developed, and some looking at them cold for the first time, uh, sometimes looking at them with a mark scheme and sometimes looking at them without the mark scheme. All different systems are put in place, to try, and the aim is simply to eliminate errors and to be as fair to, to all students as possible. 
The assessment grid is a record of every detail about every each part of every question. So, for example, it records the topic covered, the assessment objective covered, the level of demand of the question, the overall totals for these individual papers for each section. So, for example, target for number marks, target for algebra marks, target for AO1, target for AO2 and, and such like. Um, so then we get on to, we've done all the planning, we've got the grid set up, we're now into writing the first draft of the questions. So the questions are written along with the mark schemes, uh, so they are classed as one item basically. You can't have a question without a mark scheme. And the assessment grids are completed in part at the same time. Two people re review the first drafts, the reviser and the chief or the chair, depending on whether the chief is one of the writers or not. And it's possible at that stage that there may be alternative versions of questions or alternative questions, some more marks are written than we need. Uh, the comments made are replied to and changes are made as a consequence. So this might involve replacing some questions and if that's the case, then you start all over again um, because you have to go back to first draft, you see. So the second draft is then produced. This is sent back for further review. If necessary, a third draft is produced and on it goes. And this is a lengthy process. Panel of reviewers then are brought in, people who haven't seen anything up to this stage, and they will review the third or whichever draft it is at that stage. And they will make written comments. And these comments are then collated and replied to by the lead writer and further changes and amendments are made and a fourth draft is then produced. And, and Trevor, then just, sorry to interrupt you, can I just check, the, these drafts, this is drafts of a paper or is this drafts of individual questions? Is, has the paper been assembled at this stage? Uh, yes and no. You've, you've got a vague idea of what's going where, but it's subject to change all the way through. Right. But basically, you're, you're, we're looking at the items at this stage more than anything else. Ah, right. Okay. So you maybe we are have... looking to also meet the grid overall. So the numbers need to add up. Got it. So when you're presenting these these people uh, to review it and these drafts, it, yeah. it isn't just individual questions. It is kind of a sequence of questions as it may appear in a paper. But it's, yeah, uh, it's certainly... They're, they're all there, but not necessarily in the right order. Got it. Fantastic. <laughs> <Markham and> <laughs> Got it. Fantastic. And so, right. And these these people who are doing these review uh, reviewing these aren't. Um, there's no students or anything brought in at this. Stage, oh no, right? these are these are experienced examiners, teachers, and and such like who. Got you know, it. And and they are predominantly Trevor. What what what's their aim? What what are they looking to do? Are they, are they looking? at individual questions to see whether this tests what it's supposed to be testing or are they looking as a, at a more kind of holistic level to, to see whether the, the general demand feels about right? What, what, what's, their, what's their aim that you, you want them to be looking at when right. they're checking? Well, they have a long checklist of things to look at, you know, uh, down to very basic things such as do the number of marks on the question match the number of marks in the marks scheme? <laughs> <laughs> uh, to... Is it on the specification or, you know, that's mainly the reviser's job to see whether it's on the specification. But, you know, it is very easy to accidentally put some a question in and just add a little twist to it that takes it outside the specification and then it gets pulled back, you know, and then rejected. And I imagine that's especially difficult in this this year with it being the new specification. So you haven't got those years of experience where people have been so familiar with the old spec. Would that be right? That's right. Everything has to be checked, double checked, triple checked. Um, 
some people comment on wording some people comment on alternative methods for mark schemes um it's it's just a some people check the maths you know well they all do everything but some people specialize if you see what i mean um or have their favorite uh thing to comment on uh so it's it's very lengthy and then as a result of those comments those comments are all then collated and yet again uh replies are done to the comments uh and then we get to the to the meeting where uh some of these people may may even be present uh who have been commenting it might be other lead assessment writers so they're there for because they're there for their paper, but they've also commented on everybody or questions, but they've also commented on everybody else's. And at that meeting, you try and agree final wording and try and finalise the order of the questions. And that that meeting goes on for days. Uh, it feels like weeks, but it's actually. <laughs> Flip it. And so we're, we're at the stage now, are we, where we're starting to kind of finalise the order of, of the questions. Would that well, be right? It's already been done in preparation for that meeting. Right. Uh, but then but then we start looking at the order, uh, pagination, <clears throat> because of d- double-page questions. There's all sorts of things to take into account. I will come to that later, if, if you wish. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, go on. You keep going. Uh, so then... Uh, once the paper's been gone through that stage, it goes to what we call the QPAC, which is the question paper approval committee. <laughs> and once approved and signed off, it then goes to print. And then it's all fingers crossed. It's all, all good. Flipping it. Well, if we, if we could at this stage, Trevor, because the, the order of questions and particularly the crossover questions um, fascinates me. But, but one quick one on, on that. Um, is there any difference? Oh, obviously, this, this time around, we've got three papers and in the past we had two. Um, is there any difference between a question that you would put on paper two versus a question you put on paper three? Or is there? W- no, w- w- it was literally there was, there was nothing, no difference made whatsoever bet- between no. those two. No, we try to balance the questions out. Got it. F- fantastic. Well, is it okay now then, Trevor, just to talk a little bit about um, ordering the questions? Because I remember when I was when when I was at a meeting with, with Andrew Taylor and, and and Carly talking about this. I'd never heard this pagination phrase before, but I'm a little bit obsessed by that now. But because one thing I picked up on from the AQA papers is that the the order of the crossover questions. So for listeners who aren't familiar here, I'm talking about mm-hmm. questions that appear both on the foundation paper and the higher paper. And these are these, as far as I'm aware, are, are fundamentally important when it comes to um, kind of grade boundaries and getting the right difficulty of the papers. Am I right in saying that the order of these crossover questions um, on the foundation paper wouldn't necessarily match the order that they come in the higher paper? And is that purely down to this pagination process and, and the fact that you have to get the questions looking right on the page? Yeah, there's several factors to it. Uh... One is the AQA model for the four multi-choice questions at the beginning, which may not be, we call them common questions rather than crossover questions, but I know what you mean. Mm-hmm. Uh, so so some of those may not be common questions. Um, also, if, for example, a question would appear on the left-hand page of a foundation paper and the right-hand page of a higher paper, but it's a two-page question, we would, we don't want that. Yes. So we have to move it around, you know. So the way it works is the person initially putting the paper together has usually decided on order based on 
many factors. That's level of demand, trying to get them going from low to high, spreading out the topics. So, for example, we don't we don't want a long run of say geometry together. Um, pagination so that two-page questions are always on facing pages. We don't want them on a right page followed by a left page where the student has to turn over, and especially if there's a, a link back. Yes. Uh, trying to space out the problem-solving questions, trying to space out the reasoning questions, trying to avoid a, a run of questions that are novel, questions that have got twists in them, <laughs> you know, where a student could just get demoralised by, oh, no, I, this is new to me again, and I don't know what I'm doing here, that kind of response. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trying to space out questions with diagrams. As an aside, I always like something other than text on most double-page spreads. So, for example, I like to see either a diagram, a table, or a graph on as many double-page spreads as I can. So I wouldn't put all those together because I want to spread them out. Uh, I think it makes the paper look and and actually be more accessible. Yes. Uh, so that you don't get pages and pages of text which can be demoralizing yes um, one of the things we did we, we moved to electronic marking quite a few years ago now and a byproduct of that is we get far more data on how questions perform so basically that also informs and influences where you put questions in future papers so that also affects the order so a question that Five years ago, you might have had, as say, question four. You now realise that lots of people can't do it, so it's now moved and it's up at question ten, that kind of thing. And can I just ask on that, Trevor? So there's obviously lots of things coming into play in determining the order, but you mentioned at the start that it's it's this kind of progression of difficulty you're, you're looking for. Is that the kind of overriding factor? And would you you wouldn't? Is it generally the case that the last question or the last couple of questions? are the harder questions and that's that's what we aim for we also sometimes like to try and get um, an a01 type question towards the end as well so that it's not all uh, pain at the end if you yes. Think. <laughs> yes. Uh, so, so, so there are lots of factors to take into account but but the overriding thing is we do like the difficulty to ramp because it it generally means that students have more chance of getting through to the end of the paper Yes. and attempting every question. Obviously, if you put really hard questions in the middle of the paper, they may spend so long on them that they then don't complete the other questions. And that just wouldn't be fair, as far yeah. as we're concerned. Of course. And can I ask as well, because I'm, I'm obviously a massive fan of your your multiple-choice questions that you have um, in, in your paper. Can you just talk us through what, what, what was behind the decision to include those? And, and has that brought an extra challenge? Because uh, I'd assume that many of you question writers won't be familiar with writing that style of question. That's right. Multi-choice questions for me are fascinating because they are... They, they, uh, first appearance they might appear as probably the easiest questions to write but they're actually one of the hardest questions to write because the distractors the yes the three incorrect answers have to be realistic and and there are all sorts of well i've had training on uh, how to how to write these distractors because there, there are certain things that if you do in writing a multi-choice question, you can actually direct the student to the answer and, and you have to avoid doing that. So, for example, if if one of the answers is considerably longer than the other three, it's invariably the correct answer. <laughs> <laughs> so you have, we avoid that, obviously. 
Flipping X. So did they, that created an, an extra kind of degree of complexity in the writing process, did it? The, the, the multiple choice questions? It, it did, but the good thing is that the reviewers often suggest good alternatives. They'll say, oh, I don't like this one, so how about this? Because some pupils might do this, this, this. And so, you know, the, just the options get changed as well. You know, the question might be quite so- sound, but Yes. It's just one, one of the options that people take a dislike to. The good thing is when two or three people make the same comment and make the same recommendation, you know, then you know you're on the right line. <laughs> yeah. And can I ask as well, because I, I noticed that the, you've kind of a block of multiple choice questions at the start of each paper, but then also a couple kind of scattered throughout. What was the thinking behind kind of blocking at the start, but then also uh, allowing a few extras um, throughout the paper? Well, there's there's more to it than that. There's actually about... We aim for eight in each paper, so there's four at the beginning and four spread out. Right. Uh, and and the i the idea is to settle the students as much as anything. Uh, one of, one of the things is that they are very reliable uh, indicators of performance. Uh, even even looking at the incorrect answers that they give, it's very you know gives very reliable data for us it's also cuts down the words at the beginning we also make sure on the first double page if we manage to get the four questions in very in a very small space if there's a fifth question we also ensure that that's almost a non-context question very few words so the first double page spread looks inviting to the students Ah. and make and try it's what we call settlers we like to settle them down so that they're not in a state of panic after question one saying i can't do this and was that always the case so even before you brought in the multiple choice questions was it very important what that first question and the first couple of questions Abs- was absolutely absolutely yeah we, we always called it the settler we right. like to settle the students down. And it tends to be a non-context, not so wordy question just to get them into it. Is that right? That, that's right. And, and often, even if they get it wrong, they think they probably think they've got it right. And so yes. Yeah, of course. <laughs> you know, that kind of idea. And with the multiple choice questions throughout the rest of the paper, what, what, what's the thinking there, Trevor? What, why not have them all at the start? Uh, because we wanted some balance through the rest of the paper as well. I mean... We don't want all long questions one after the other. It's back to this thing about how do we decide the order of the questions. You need to break things up, and that's a nice way of breaking things up. Yes, got it. And the just just to these what I call crossover questions and what you call common questions, do they take on an extra degree of significance when you when you're considering a question to be one of these common questions? Is there anything you look for? In that, that you perhaps isn't as important in other questions that are just specific to the different tiers. Uh, a similar thing. We try to achieve a balance, um, but we don't want predictability because the danger of having a balance on one section of a paper is also that you increase the predictability of the paper. So, you know, we we try to. Uh, if you like, spread out the marks on the different topics and the different assessment objectives through the common questions so that, um, for example, you don't get all A or two A or three questions. Because bear in mind, they're going on two tiers as well. So, you, you know, what's at the end of one paper is the beginning of another. So you need to satisfy the requirements for the papers at both ends. Got it. Got it. Um, and can I ask as well, just before we move on from the writing process in general, 
Um, just with the timeline, so you, you spoke there about how the, the writing for the 2017 paper began in 2015. So if when um, when the results come out for, for this year's paper and there's always discussion left, right and centre, if it turns out that there the was a, a genuine problem or teachers had genuine concerns with the 2017 um, papers, um, is there time to make changes for the 2018 or are they kind of locked away, ready to go? No, no, there's, uh, the process is so long. Uh, you know, the papers are not signed off until uh, a few months before, the, just before the exam. Uh, so, you know, everything's still in a work in progress kind of thing. We're, we're not at that stage yet with the 2018 papers where we can't change things. Got it. F fantastic. Um, I'd like to ask now, I'd like to dig into just some specifics on questions, Trevor, because I'm absolutely obsessed with with question writing. Yeah. Um, just a bit of a broad one to begin with. In your opinion, what makes a good question? Right. Uh, well, for me, a good question assesses what is intended to assess. It's unambiguous. It has very clear wording, no unnecessary distractors, accessible content, and if, if appropriate, because sometimes we don't have any content, obviously, and an authentic context. Uh, let me just talk about mark schemes briefly, because sure. mark schemes are part of the question as far yeah, as I'm definitely. concerned. So a question is not a good question if the mark scheme does not allow for consistent and fair marking. So the mark scheme and the question have to be thought of as one item. If you don't do that, you're in trouble. <laughs> if... if if a writer think, if a new writer thought, well, I'll write all the questions and I'll sort the mark schemes after, <laughs> they, they will find they hit all sorts of problems. Uh, so I suppose we should look at, if we're being fair, if we look at what makes a good question, we should also look at what makes a, a bad question. So obviously all the opposites of a good question, but I would add questions that are flawed. And they're the most dangerous because obviously we need to pull them out of the system. For example, a question describes a situation that's impossible. For example, you can't draw the triangle that's being described. Yes. Uh, so the, you've, you've done a question and you decided not to put the diagram in. If you had have put the diagram in, you might have realised it couldn't be done. <laughs> uh, so that's where the checks come in. Um, questions where there are differing definitions are, are something of a nightmare often statistics questions but not always statistics for example the definition of a prison big debate on on various forums about how you define a prison uh, the definition of modal class uh, particularly in relation to histograms and so on so if you've got different definitions that are out there you have to be very very careful if you're going to ask a question on it uh, because you know particularly if it was a multi-choice question there may be more than one answer <laughs> yeah <laughs> Um, just just on that as well, on questions and mark schemes, Trevor, because often you'll hear teachers say that a, a really good question out of the context of an exam would be one that has several different ways of getting to the solution. But I know having marked exams myself, that is the last thing you want, because then you're looking at the mark scheme and you've got alternate method one, alternate method two, alternate method three, and becomes a, a bit of a nightmare to mark. So. Is that something you tend to try and avoid or encouraging questions? Questions where there's more than one way to get to the, the right answer? Uh, no, no. If, uh, if there's more than one way, all the better. And still, still see the, uh, the quick way of going through things. All credit to them, you know. And uh, 
we do try and put the alternative methods in in rank order. So uh, when we look at scripts, we say, well, alternative method one is the most common. Alternative method two is the next most common. And we do try and add guidance to to point the examiners to, you know, watch out for this, watch out for them using this method and so on. But <clears throat> but no, we uh, we try to put as many methods into the mark scheme as we can and examiners have to deal with it. Got it. And would that, I'm going to dig into marking a, a little bit later, but just, just on that, um, would that be something that may change as well? That if, if all of a sudden your markers discover that students are actually answering a question in a way that's not been anticipated by the mark scheme, could it be the case that the mark scheme gets changed in that marking period to reflect <coughs> this, this alternate way of going about it? Uh, absolutely. I'll, I'll, I will talk about that sure. later, but uh, but yeah, definitely. Uh, Mark scheme is a, a work in progress, and in fact, it's a longer process than the question paper because the question <laughs> paper has gone to print yes. earlier than the Mark scheme has gone to publication. Got it. So Got right it. up until the, the live marking starts, changes can be made at the very last minute. Got it. Got it. And just a couple more on on questions. I'm particularly interested in the contextual questions because uh, it's just like I've I've read a lot of research and and Dylan William talks a lot about this, about the the dangers of of, of dodgy context, unrealistic context, ambiguous context and so on. So how do you decide on on which context to to set questions in and, and what are some of the issues you need to be aware of, Trevor? All right. Well, if I talk first of all about how I kind of set questions that inspires me to write a particular sure. question on a particular topic. Um, and I'm sure this is different for different people. Everybody has their own ways of doing things. But in my case, I use my own experiences and those of people I know as ideas for realistic context. Students like money questions, for example. So it, it's a good thing to put money questions in because it makes them accessible because they're familiar. Right. Um, uh, a different example, uh, my hobby for flying uh, resulted in various questions about bearings, air temperature <laughs> at different heights above the ground, the fact that every thousand feet up drops two degrees, that kind of thing, speed, distance, time questions. Uh, I think it makes the questions more interesting if, if, if I can relate to them, but also if I think the students can relate to them. Um, there's a skill in not only knowing what to ask, but also what not to ask really a major weakness of new writers is often trying to be too clever right they try to write a question that's got too many twists and we you know we always try to avoid trick questions so for example questions with a a hidden trap as clearly that doesn't fulfill what we're trying to do we're trying to be fair and if you if you're tricking question people by if you like difficult wording or awkward phrasing you know, that, that's not what we're about. We're about being fair to students. Uh, you might find this interesting. A phrase I use when I reject questions in reply to the lead writers is, I had to look at the mark scheme to see what you wanted. Oh, nice. I like that. Uh, that basically tells you everything you want to know about a question because <laughs> if, if I have to look at the mark scheme, it means what's going on here what, what yes. you know if i don't know what what you want how are the students expected to know what you want and yes. basically that's it heck. hardest part of the writing really um i suppose i used to take a long time deciding on a particular version of a question to use as i often had different ideas for the same topic so 
But I think most people find getting the wording and the numbers right is, is the most difficult. Um, like I say, it's, it's vital that the marking is appropriate for the question, but what you don't want is a question where you can fluke the answer using a suspect method. Yes. So the, the right answer comes from either incorrect working or working that you can't really fathom out. Where's that come from? Kind of question comes up. Yes. Uh, and we put a lot of time, effort and research into this to make sure we get it right and give students the best chance. And when it comes to when it comes to the um the let, let, yeah let's let's go let's go contact <laughs> coffee. yeah just because again i'm obsessed with this trevor so say say for example you write a question that that you feel is interesting um to you and you hope it's going to be interesting to the students how do you know that like is it obviously you've vast experience but is there any kind of way of checking any tests that you know because obviously like I've, I've been teaching 13 years now and the kids are flipping changing every year with yeah. what they're interested in what they know about and stuff and i've i've notice myself that like take something as simple as dice or prop or yeah. spinners for probability half the kids haven't got a flipping clue what they are they only know them from kind of maths lessons and stuff so that's, how, that's how, right how do you know what what context kids are going to understand and also not make any kind of false inferences from if that makes sense well it, to be honest it's it's difficult sure because of all the changes but uh Part of it is experience. Part of it is the fact we have so many reviewers and, and people flag things up. And, you know, you might have a reviewer who's, who's teaching in a, shall we say, teaches a lot of low ability foundation students and, and the comment will come back saying, my students will not have a clue what you're on about. Yes. Uh, and basically that, that's the end of that question or the end of that context. You know, it's gone and it has to be replaced, you know. Um, so we, we also try to find contexts that don't give an advantage to certain students. Yes. This, that can be difficult. So, for example, if you do a question about points scoring in a particular sport, if the student does that sport, they've clearly got an advantage. So we have to try and ensure by our wording that we make it absolutely clear to students who don't do that sport as equally clear to them how this point scoring works. And if we can't do that, then the question's a non-starter so we have to ensure that we're assessing the maths and not the prior knowledge of the yes. sport you see what i mean i do uh, i do and the, the other thing on that trevor because one thing that fascinated me is sometimes it works the other way around so there's a wonderful paper by joe bowler called it's something along the lines of why girls perform poorly in fashion-based questions that sometimes when, when you put a context that you think is going to appeal yeah, to, to students that and but but the context has been simplified so much to make it work um in an exam in ex exam situation kids bring in their own more realistic outside yeah. knowledge that actually makes them perform worse is is that something that's yeah, consideration? That, that's where I talked about the question being authentic, because you yes. can have a, a question on a topic that's realistic, but the question is not authentic. Yes. Uh, other things we need to be aware of, of course, are bias, for example, gender, race. Uh, we need to be aware of the balance of topics, so you can't have the same kind of topics, if you like, not subject topics, but you know, context topics coming up over and over again. So, you know, we, we have the question on football and then another question on football. You can't do that, you know. Yes. Um, 
we need accessibility, we need real life situations. I mean, the list goes on and on. We, and back to your thing about spinners. Well, we know some things like children playing with spinners is outdated, but it's a context that doesn't alienate them because they're used to it, you know. So, yes. so we still use it because it, it allows us to cut down on the wording and the context because it's a familiar situation. Got it. And, and can I, can I ask as well, Trevor, on, on context, is there a pressure or a desire to bring in more kind of modern things, say, for, for want of a better phrase? So will we start to see things involving Twitter and Snapchat and Pinterest and Xbox and all that? Or is that something that just exams just stay clear of? Well, it's difficult because of advertising and copyright and various other things. Uh, so we we do try to avoid uh, particular references. We try to be quite generic in in what we say, you know. So, so we don't have Coca Cola, for example. We have cola. <laughs> um, but what about in terms of the kind of the, the wider picture? So things that kids now are interested in yeah, and actually well, exist that wouldn't have ten years ago, like social media, for example. Would would that, oh, would yeah, that start I mean, to cre- creep into questions? Well, naturally, things come in as, as things become more familiar uh, and become more if you like newsworthy and they're on the news and people see them on the tv and such like so yes i mean all you have to do is look at a paper from 20 years ago and compare it with the paper <laughs> now and you'll see how how things evolve you know well, we never talked about uh, you know computers and tablets years ago but now it's everyday everyday life um can i just talk about one other thing yeah, of course. Because this is the thing that really interests me. Um, questions have what we call modifiers of difficulty. So, and you can do this on any question. They're effectively words, numbers in a question that might cause a problem. For example, if you've got a long or an unusual name, that scores a point on this modifiers of difficulty. Uh, a difficult word, a technical term an excessive number of facts. They, they all add up. And so what we do is we actually count them up. So you go through a question and you count up everything that might cause a problem. So, you know, you've used a strange name, so that's one point. You've used uh, the word consecutive, so that's another point. Uh, you've used, do you see what I mean? Yeah. Do, all yeah. the way through the question, uh, you've, you've chucked a seven in, so there's another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you come up with a, a rough score. Uh, and that tells you about the demand of the question, because the, if that number goes high, you know that the question is going to uh, suffer, if you like, or the responses and, to the question are going to be much lower. And that's kind of independent of the actual difficulty of the question determined by the topic, if that's that right, makes sense. That's right, that's right. Right, flipping heck. It's, 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 it's something that, like I often do when I'm reviewing other people's questions, I think, oh, God, there's a lot of, there's a lot of information here. Uh, and I'll, let's tot up, let's count the modifiers up, and then you get to, you get to eight or nine, and you think, no, nah, something's got to go. Right. <laughs> and is it is it is it the case, Trevor, that the, those high scores using that that question uh, the question modifiers is always a bad thing, or sometimes are you looking for more difficult things that are independent of the topic to be involved in a question? Well, it's just something you have to be aware of. If 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 you're aiming a a question at low demand and you put lots and lots of modifiers in the question is invariably not low demand you know yes um, if you're aiming at high demand then fair enough you know it's it's a balance again but it's another 
factor that we take into account when we when we're reviewing questions flip it it's difficult isn't it because when you mentioned the demand there so a high demand question just take something like further trigonometry maybe you've got yeah. like a, a real complex question involving sine real cosine real all sorts going on do you there want you want to make sure you're testing the right thing right you want the demand to be about the content itself and not possibly these modifiers where for whatever reason they've, they've got high literacy demands or they've got a confusing name or or more difficult numbers than necessary so it do you, is it not the case that you want to always try and keep these modifiers low to ensure that you're testing the thing you want to test uh but sometimes we are testing whether they can uh, work their way through the context right. and work their way through so like i say it's a balance you know so you, you don't not do it altogether. you, you have to do it sometimes uh, for example on, on your trigonometry let's suppose we put the trigonometry into a bearings question bearings is traditionally not well done <laughs> yeah. uh, topic um, you know that you're ramping up the difficulty straight away um, but but you may be assessing bearings so and that may be the way you want to assess the bearings in this particular instance that you want a high level yes of demand and you want to assess bearings in in that way so along the process somebody might say well i think we should have a diagram to help them or we might do this or we might do that and you know so that students can get started on the question who can't complete the question because you do want people scoring on all the marks yes yeah and just with that because you, you you've hooked me in a bit there with 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 bearings trevor because it's it's something weird that kids in, invariably struggle with bearings and it, it always fascinates me so a couple of questions on that um are there other topics that traditionally kids always have a nightmare with and, and how do you account for that in the exam do, do you try and include them in more simplistic ways do you try and bundle them in with other topics how do you account for for the traditionally low performing topics uh, it, it varies. Uh, there were topics a few years ago in statistics when statistics was relatively new to the specification, um, which were uh, often poorly attempted. Uh, but it didn't stop us asking the questions because the part of the specification, you have to yes, cover the specification. Yeah. Uh, and what you find is, I mean, if you keep asking the questions, eventually... Uh, the performance does improve slightly. <laughs> Bearings is just one of those quirky topics that, no matter how much you push it, it, it the, you know, there's still it's still not got there, uh, which is a shame. Yeah, especially for an aeroplane lover like yourself. Um, well, are there, are, are well can I come other... to my favourite yeah. question? <laughs> yeah, go go for it. Oh, well, just just before then, Trevor, um, are there any other topics like bearings that that kids traditionally do poorly on in exams? Uh, pie charts. Uh, they often use the numbers in the table and then find they've got a sector left over because <laughs> the angles pie charts are traditionally badly done and that's you would think that's not the hardest of topics sure. uh, completing the square at a higher level is, is usually not very well done uh, proof on algebra proof on any kind of thing is needs a lot of work Um and it's obviously some of the reasoning questions, yes. it's really the subject content, it's, it's how you're presenting the question that sometimes presents the challenge as well, you know, where you're asking them to do interpreting and such like. Got it. Fantastic. Well, yeah, well, let, let's move on then, Trevor, to, to a, if you have a favourite question that you've written. 
Well, I was just thinking of it when you were talking. So I, I do have one each series. Um, my all-time favourite is the one about numbers on airport runways. Oh, yes. Which has been discussed more than any other over the years. There were different versions because it appeared on foundation and higher tiers. It was also on another specification that was sat on the same day with a variation on the question uh, on, a, on a pilot paper. So, <laughs> <surprisingly>. <laughs> uh, AQA actually received the odd complaint about it because it wasn't a standard question. One of the complaints referred to the fact that it wasn't a ship. But data showed that the students could do it. And afterwards, teachers were telling me that at last some of their students were interested in bearing. So I thought, mission accomplished. Yeah. Can can you remember the wording of one of the the versions of the question? I can vaguely remember the question. So for those not familiar, um, the runway number times 10 gives you the bearing. Obviously rounded. Um, So, for example, runway 24 is on a bearing of 240 degrees. And the question was about, we're painting the runway at the other end, and we wanted to know what the number was going to be painted on the other end of the runway, which is obviously facing the other way. So you had to subtract the 180 degrees or subtract 18, depending on how you did it. So there were, that was a question where there was more than one way of doing it. But actually, I love the question, and uh, and we got really good responses. That's nice. So you, you want to print that out and get that framed, maybe, Trevor? Well, yeah. I mean, it's, a, it's an all-time favourite. I have got others. I mean, the, yeah, go on. I give like, something. I like the ones that link Fibonacci to the miles-kilometre conversion. All right. Because many many teachers commented to me that they learned something they didn't know. Yes. So you know, five miles, eight kilometres, eight kilometres is thir- eight, eight miles is thirteen kilometres, and so on. Uh, so I had a question on that just because. That's what I do when I go abroad. That's how I do the (laughs) conversions when I'm driving. Um, An early favourite from around 2000 when I first started writing, so it was probably on my first paper, uh, was about magic squares, uh, which is another thing that fascinates me. Uh, This question, it started at the lower end of foundation with a simple number problem of filling in the magic square. And... It had several parts to it, and it ended at the top of the higher paper as a simultaneous equation question. Ah, nice. And uh, just one other aside, I once sneaked a caricature of my face into a specimen paper, which, <laughs> which made me laugh, and it got, because it was a specimen paper, it got through. I'm sure they'd have rejected it on a live one. <laughs> do, you, um, do you often like drop in names of friends and family in there, Trevor? Give people a shout-out in questions. Provided they've got nice short names, I do. And uh, <laughs> yeah, my wife's been in there, and uh, my, my children have been there. One of my sons was on the first non-calculator paper using a calculator. There was a picture of a calculator <laughs> paper with a, a picture of the display. Uh, I, I just thought that was a quirky thing to do to put a picture of a calculator on the first non-calculator paper. Nice, I like it. I like <laughs> it. And um, what about um, any questions you regret writing, Trevor? That's a lot harder to answer because often regrets are more about the masking than the question. Right. So you know, it's with hindsight. I wish I'd marked it this way or that way. Uh, sometimes it's more about the numbers used than the question itself. I once, and it's not too long ago. Uh, I had a high mark question about areas and only after the paper had been sat before marking had started so when we were standardising the marking did I realise there was a very neat shortcut method so the question (laughs) was about five or six marks 
and there was some very good students had realised that you could do the question in two lines. Right. <laughs> That's always very difficult because you know, if, especially if they don't get to the correct answer using the, that method, how do you how do you award marks? You know, so so that was a regret that particular question. Uh, not because I didn't like the question, but because I didn't like the fact that the mark schemes were hard to marry up, if you see what I mean. Yes. Um, and is it is it sometimes, does it happen where you write a question and you think this is a really good question, but for whatever reason, other people don't share the same view on it? And is that quite tough? Do you get quite kind of possessive of your questions? Um, a lot of writers get possessive, but when you get to my stage, you know, <laughs> it, it's, it's easier just to say, fair enough, off it goes. Uh, so, so yeah, some try to uh, tweak the question, bring it back, and tweak it again and bring it back. <laughs> um, I remember a question years ago. Uh, it was about dumbbells, and it, it, it had... <laughs> It must have had six or seven versions before I finally got to a version that was acceptable. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Well, if we can move then, I think that takes us nicely to the marking process. And we, you, one thing you said early on that fascinated me that I, I didn't realise at all is that the question and the mark scheme get written um, at the same time. And now you've said it, that makes um, perfectly logical sense. But I wonder um, if you could take us through the marking process, Trevor, in as much detail as you like. So when, well, well when does it start and who, who, do, who starts it? Who starts it all off? Right. So the, the, the lead assessment writer, the person writing the questions, as he writes the question or she, they write the mark scheme. So the mark scheme is written at the same time at first draft. If the question's modified, that can have knock-on effects to the mark scheme. So the mark scheme's not modified. What happens often is that the mark scheme flags up issues with the question. Yes. So, for example, as they start writing the mark scheme, so let's suppose you've written a question, you've given it four marks, you start writing the mark scheme and you can't get four marks out of it and you think it's only <laughs> worth three, why did I give it four? So you go back to the question, you change it to three marks, you know, or um, the mark scheme then flags up alternative methods. So one of the reviewers looks at it, they do it a completely different way to how you did the question and that flags up other issues that then mean the question gets changed. So it's a... That's why it's such a, an integrated part. The whole thing is one item. Yes. Um, and sometimes the mark scheme will throw up ambiguities in the question. You know, there are all sorts of things can happen. So at each stage, as the question develops, the mark scheme develops. Um, and increasingly these days, that's the case. Let's say 10, 20 years ago, it wasn't as the mark scheme wasn't as seen as important as. as as of high importance as it is now, um, it's that people have realised the value of using it to yes. form the question. Um, so mark schemes change significantly as the exam is sat. I mean, the worst case scenario is you get you, you finally see the students work, and you completely have to revamp your mark scheme because the current the mark scheme you've written just isn't working for the vast majority of students' responses. Yes. Uh, so mark scheme can change significantly. Obviously, that's not the most desirable thing to happen, but um, but if, if need be, we change the mark scheme to reflect the approaches used by the students. And how does that kind of come to light, Trevor? Is that like what? When do, who sees the first set of live student responses? Is it kind of like a close knit group of you who go through a, a certain yeah, well, sample of them? It is really, but. Uh, 
um, we have the the examiners are going to be marking. They have um, training material to look at. They are, you know practice marking where the marks. They can actually pretend the marking. Uh, so it's what we call training mode, but the marks don't count. So because the mark scheme hasn't at this stage been finalised, right. they are just practising using the mark scheme in its current form to see whether it's working and such like. They're sending comments about the mark scheme. Uh, this leads to some very, very long days and nights working on the mark scheme <laughs> before, before the standardisation meetings. Um, and at this stage, we're still making changes Often it's additions to the mark scheme rather than significant changes because you're clarifying things or we have a section of the mark scheme called additional guidance where we put extra notes. So we'll say, you know, student who gives this response will score this, this, this. And that's all to help the examiners get consistency of marking, which is obviously all to help the fairness to the students. Um, so we see these what we call sample clips or sample questions. Uh, and we select some really tough ones to use for the standardising of all the examiners after they've done the training. And they're the ones that are supervised. They, they mark them and then they check their marks against our marks and we point out why we gave a particular mark. And we, we find the, the toughest ones we can for them to mark at this stage. Uh, so that after that, anything they meet should, should <laughs> yeah. be okay. And uh, how soon after the kids have taken the actual exam does does this process kick in? And when do the when do the uh, the examiners like the, the wider pool of examiners who are going to be marking these scripts? When do they start their training and start the actual marking? So if you say day one is the day of the exam, yeah, we're on about day four or five or even three or four. We can often see the some of the. Some of the students' responses have been scanned into the system so we can get them up on our computers and look at them. And this is, sorry, Trevor, so, this is day one of, like, paper one, or do you wait till the end of no, the... No, it's, it's for each paper. You, right. The, the, you know, so, so I, this year I was on paper 3H, so on, on the day that exam was sat, three days later, I'm on my computer looking at students' responses. Right. And I'm collecting responses. I'm amending the mark scheme from my own experience, but I'm also being inundated with comments from examiners and team leaders, um, sending in comments about the mark scheme, saying there's this method that's not on, or there's this guidance needs to be added, and such like. Yes. Uh, so that develops. Uh, we then have two days where the senior examiners get together, and then a further, uh, a further two days where more senior examiners, so the team leaders, the ones who supervise the assistant examiners, where they all get together. Uh, so there's four days of that. Then we put the uh, what we call the seeded responses into the system to check examiners' marking. So uh, we have another two days doing that, and then at the end of that, the marking goes live, and two, two and a half weeks later, all the marks are in. Flipping heck. Jeez, that's some, some process that because just just give us a sense. How many kids sat the twenty seventeen um, AQA GCSE roughly? Do you, do you have rough ballpark figure? About eighty thousand per tier. Jeez, <sighs> flipping heck. And what um if it's not an obvious question, what what are which mark which kind of questions cause difficulty? Is it the multi mark contextual wordy ones or are are there other questions that cause difficulty when it comes to the marking? Uh 
Yeah, it's you're exactly right. The the, the wordy ones cause the most difficulties. Some statistics questions, um, and some explaining questions, basically, often due to issue with the levels of the students' language skills. So you, you know they they're not always the clearest in their responses as well. Um, the key is to have a long list of acceptable and unacceptable responses so that examiners can find a best fit to the student response. Yes. Um, that's where the, the, those six days and the days before that come in. That The more work you put in at that stage, the easier the marking becomes because, you know, the more responses you've seen already and you're armed with that information, you know the yes. kind of things. I wonder whether, has technology helped here, Trevor? Because I'm just thinking, like, back back in the days before emails or whatever. Like, I'm assuming you'd need to just issue a paper copy of the mark scheme. And once that was out there, it'd be very difficult to firstly contact all the examiners and also make changes. Whereas now I imagine that if, if an issue does come to light, you can at least electronically get that information in, in front of people. That's right. And, and we have a, a system where we can send messages around all the time to everyone. Uh, it's all very efficient and uh, and you know we're all very accessible as well so that's yes. the good thing about it uh, and can you um, remember any particularly uh, troublesome questions that have caused issues over the years with marking uh, I can think of uh, one in the recent past where we had a comparison uh, two, two frequency polygons one for boys one for girls and we had to compare the data and there are so many different things you could say about the data. So it was about the times it took for boys and girls to complete a task. And you could have commented on the range of the times. You could have commented on what we call point comparisons. So you could say, you know, um, so many students completed the task in six minutes and, and this uh, comparing boys with girls. Um, the responses were so wide and varied, and, and I asked, and I asked for three comparisons. And with hindsight, I sh that was well, at least one too many, possibly three too many. <laughs> um, it, it made it very difficult for the markers, you know, because they were saying all sorts about these these graphs, and some things we thought were valid, and some things we thought were not relevant, really, you know. Yes. Um, and can I ask as well, as well, Trevor, on that? I remember so when I in my first couple of years of teaching, I was uh, we used to do um, OCR um, for for A level, and I remember one particular paper. It was the um, uh, A level de decision one paper, but there was a, a mistake on the question, um, and. I, what, what fascinated me is when that happens on, on any exam, when there is a mistake on the question, what what do you do? Like, um, what decision do you make? Like, because it's tricky, isn't it? Because if you disregard that question, just take it, take it out and don't give kids any credit for it. How do you know how long different students have spent on it? How do you know how it's affected them and so on? What what happens if if during the marking process you discover that actually there, there is a big, big problem with the question? Well, we flag it up and, and, and AQA make decisions on, on whether to discount the question. Sometimes um, centres will report errors on questions, and when we look at the question, there isn't an error. Uh, yes. <laughs> um, it still sets the alarm bells going, but um, that's why we, we try our utmost to avoid the errors. I mean, it, it, you just do not want it to happen. No. Nobody wants it. Uh, and... 
and obviously centres if if an error does does happen have have the right to appeal against their mark you know and uh, yes. have their paper reviewed in full and have a reports on the paper and, and such like and we have done that in the past you know but uh, hopefully um these errors are kept to a minimum because <laughs> <laughs> And I'm gonna gonna ask you in a second of it about the grade boundary process. But just just be, just before that, what what for you out of the whole process, Trevor, is the most nervous, nerve wracking like day? Um, is it is it results day, or is it the day that the the paper that you've been responsible for is sat, or, or you know? What, and how, so, how do you react? How do you react? Are you, are you looking on Twitter and seeing all the responses? No. Kids are coming. And what, what, what do you do? When do you get nervous? And what do you do about so it? So do I get re- nervous on results day? Absolutely not. <laughs> <laughs> nice. <laughs> uh, I try to keep well away from things on on results day. To be honest, uh, I get nervous on the day the papers sat. Right. For the fear of anything cropping up, or for you know, um, in the past I've looked at people's comments on student room you know hidden in yes. the background had a look and things like that but, uh, <laughs> but no uh, if 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 the phone doesn't ring i'm quite happy because <laughs> uh, it's, it's interesting isn't it i right at the start when i first started this podcast i interviewed andrew taylor uh, grain coming from edexcel and neil ogden from, from ocr and i asked them about how they respond um, when their papers have been sat because Twitter's just gone mental these days with with mm. with kids immediately coming out of an exam and sharing their thoughts on, on papers. Mm. And uh, I interviewed Graham Cumming um, about the um, I asked him about the Hannah Sweet debacle that happened oh, yeah. years ago, where, where like it was national news and stuff. Yeah. But um, is that something that you just yeah you just, you just kind of make a conscious decision to to shut your mind off? And as you say, if if something official happens and the phone rings, then you're going to deal with it. But otherwise. You're just not looking at any kind of social media. Uh, that's pretty much it. I, I, I do get nervous on the day the papers sat, but having been involved in the process of awarding, I know at national level the results will be right. So yes. I, I know that doesn't take into account the variation at school level. I can remember waiting to see how my own, my own students would do. And we all have students where we think he or she should get a B, and it's a relief when that happens. Um, but yeah, my big nerves are on the morning of the exam and I'm waiting for that first hour and a half to pass and then after that, <laughs> after that I'm fine. <laughs> Got it. Fantastic. Hey, can, can I just ask you briefly about, about grade boundaries? Because that's been the massive uncertainty this year, certainly for teachers. And I, I completely understand that it without it's been very difficult or impossible, in fact, for, for the awarding bodies to, to give any guidance on, on grade boundaries. But can you just talk us through um, the process of how are grade boundaries actually determined, Trevor? Well, I have sent a link through to you um, of an AQA video about grade boundaries. So... Uh, if that could be made available, I think that would yeah, be very I'll useful share, to look I'll at. Sh- I'll share that on the podcast notes page, definitely. Yeah. Um, well, once the marks are in, the awarding meeting takes place. So, you know, we've already had the awarding meeting for this summer, obviously, because the results are out next week. But um, early July, we're awarding. And uh, still, AQA use students' prior data to predict overall outcomes. Lead examiners also make predictions based on archive material and experience. Um, And there's lots of other statistical analysis that takes place to compare performance across tiers to ensure consistency between awarding bodies. And finally, scripts are looked at to determine key boundaries. That's a very simplistic and very short 
statement about a very lengthy and complex process. Uh, it was a bit different for the first award of the new GCSE. But in a typical year, we start with the statistically recommended boundary, which is usually being determined by looking at student performance on each paper and then ensuring that the overall performance of the subject meets all the predictions. So that uses key stage two results and such like to, to make these predictions. So that's the quantitative quantitative part. The awarding committee, which is made up of the chair of examiners, the chief examiner, the lead examiners, then apply qualitative judgment. To do this, we first review work from the previous year on the boundary mark to remind ourselves of the standard. We review scripts from the current year in a range around statistically recommended boundary. So if, say, the what we call the SRB, the statistically recommended boundary, was 60, we'd look at scripts between, say, 58 and 62. What we should find is that the work on 62 is better than the standard seen in the archive work and that the work on 58 is not as good as the archive standard. If that's the case, then we need to decide whether the SRB of 60 is the right place for the boundary. Effect effectively, at that point, uh, if it is, that's the decision made. If we feel it's a little bit out, we, we can make recommendations. And, but it's a... It's a it's the chair's decision based on the judgment individually of all the people in the meeting. Yes. Um, it usually works quite well. There are occasions when we move away from statistical boundaries because of the evidence we're seeing, in which case we have to produce extra reports to justify what we're doing. Um, we don't do this on every boundary. We do it on what we call the key grade boundaries. So. It, in the past, it was on grades A, C and F, and now it's on 7, 4 and 1. All the other boundaries are then arithmetically calculated from those. Um, this year, it, it was obviously different because the process was far more statistically driven to bring the 4s into line with the Cs and so on. Um, our role as the awarding committee was simply to confirm that the standard seen and the proposed boundary marks was acceptable for the new standard. I'm sure next year it'll be more going back more to the qualitative quantitative balances in previous years. So that's pretty much it, really. <laughs> Got it. Yeah, it's a it's it's a it's a tricky one, isn't it? And it do is. You, um, um, and I hope my only hope as a, as a teacher myself is that once we get the great boundaries for, for this, for the 2017 sitting, that it'll just, at least we've got something to go off because again, we just had nothing from the specification papers. We had kind of guidance, but it's with so much uncertainty, it was just a really, really difficult situation for, for teachers to be in. But I guess there was, there was nothing else the awarding bodies could have done, right? Well, it, it would have been misleading to do anything else yes. because until you see student performance, you, you can't guess Yes. It's too important to try to try guesswork and invariably if you guess at least one of your guesses is going to be wrong, you know. So. Yes, of course. Of course. And um, well, just last couple of uh, from me, Trevor. First, just just a couple of general questions. Um, if you were suddenly uh, put in a position where you could completely change and overhaul the maths GCSE, the way it's examined, um, what would you do? That's a tricky question. Um Personally, and this is purely a personal opinion, uh, I would fundamentally change the assessment objectives so there is less overlap and ambiguity. I would clarify the subject content. The fact that teachers ask for clarification highlights the fact it's not clear enough. Uh, as a consequence, 
we produced a 170-page teaching guidance document clarifying the bounds of what students were expected to know. And still we get queries about the specification. Problem solving, yeah, happy with problem solving. It should retain its place within the papers, but we shouldn't overlook the standard procedure questions either. We need to cater for all the students. Yes, and you'd still you'd ha you'd still happily have the three papers you wrote. You wrote. Uh, were you happy with the move from two to three? Uh, I, f I felt that the move to three papers was essential in view of the extra content and yes, and the concentration levels of students uh, in exam situations. Uh, uh, plus the eighty mark thing, we have found that eighty marks is is a good number for for exam papers it's it's the number where the paper's not too long but it's it's long enough to give us a spread of marks for the different grades uh, so it's it, it does seem to be the ideal length of a paper whether it's two papers or three papers uh, as long as we have so much content and we have to cover so much content we would have to have three papers but uh, i'm i'm sure that you could adequately uh, award if you like on on two papers yes and the performance and would, is so similar yes and would you if, if you could would you go back to the the legacy specification or are you are you happy now with with this one do you think it's been an improvement uh, i think it's a balance i think there's one or two things that i, I miss from the legacy at the at the lower end for the weaker students um i think you have to be fair to all students and uh, you know and and i think some of this is really challenging for the weaker students uh, I'm quite happy with the extra demand but I would review um, which topics are where and and put more of the uh, topics which may be used in everyday life into the foundation pay to the foundation if, if you see what I mean you know I'd, I'd certainly review the content in each tier so like for example things like trigonometry and uh, factorizing quadratics was that a mistake do you think making those foundation uh it's hard to say i mean it's early days we need to see how this develops and my one hope is that we could settle down for a you know, yes <laughs> with a specification because during my time i've had so many changes and i, I don't mind change it's from my point of view, it's, it's work, you know. Yes. <laughs> um, but uh, but on the other hand, you, you need to test things out, and you you know we don't want knee-jerk reactions to things. No. So, um, so I don't really want to comment too much on that. No, of course. And were you happy, Trevor? Because um, when I first started teaching, coursework was still still fly, flying around. Um, would you bring that back if you could? Uh, no, I wouldn't. <laughs> no, no. Uh, How come? Be simply because uh, coursework was fine in principle. Uh, I mean, some of, some of the coursework tasks are very, very enjoyable, but yes. within an assessment, an external assessment, as a model, I didn't ever feel it was as robust as sitting there examining an examination room under supervision. Yeah, fair enough. No, I think I agree with that. Some great questions, though. But yeah, no, it's uh, yeah, it was ne never never working exactly how it should. Um, last last question from me then before I hand over to you for your big three is that um, looking back kind of over your career now, Trevor, what what have you learnt about exam writing over the years that you you didn't know when you first started? Ooh, that's that's tough. It's just so much. I mean, 
it, when I started, it used to take me so long to do every, every aspect of every task. <laughs> uh, so one thing I've learned is how to speed up a little bit. Yeah. Uh, um, I think I think the big one is uh, training of others. Really, I mean, uh, to pass on the experiences I've gained because you know I'm not going to go on forever, and uh, and we do need good young. Uh, I suppose I shouldn't be ageist, but good new, <laughs> good new uh, contributors to the uh, to the examining process. And is it is it? Uh, I mean, obviously, if you haven't been a teacher yourself, is is it a similar challenges to to training and teaching uh, people to be examiners as it was to to students, or is it a different kettle of fish? Well, I just find examining fascinating. I, I just enjoy every aspect of it, and. Uh, I've learned so much in, in so many ways. You know, it informs the teaching, obviously. Um, the information that you gain is, is priceless, you know, and even down to the silly responses you sometimes get from <laughs> students, you know, uh, the, the things that keep you sane in the middle of math. Uh, <laughs> do, uh, do you collect all those uh, daft responses together, Trevor? Uh, I've got a, a fair collection of... Uh, daft response there mm-hmm. i always remember the uh, the cube with the label on the front that a student changed into a leaking washing machine uh, <laughs> the, the artwork was just superb you know <laughs> so, you'll have to bring you'll have to bring a yeah. book out with those yeah. at some point Trevor. yeah the goat with the rope round his neck that somebody put at the top of a a fair ride so it was about <laughs> to slide down with the rope round his neck oh god <laughs> <laughs> Flipping heck. Anyway. Oh, fantastic. Fantastic. Well, uh, to finish for me, Trevor, I'd like to hand over to you for your big three. So I wonder if there are any three websites or blog posts or whatever you want that you direct listeners to, and I'll place links to these in the show notes. Well, the first one I've got is uh, graphpapermaker.com. It's, it's a graph paper making program that my son wrote uh, when he was still at school. Uh, when I was newly appointed, I needed to be able to draw graphs and so I asked him, he's, he's now a computer scientist, I asked him to write me a computer program um, to enable me to set up graph paper to make life easier so I didn't have to do it manually. And so that's available as a download and free for non-commercial use. Fantastic. Um, I know lots of people use it already. Uh, the second one is clearly all about maths where all the information at AQA is stored, the practice papers, um, the teaching guidance and such like. I couldn't leave that one out since much of that material I've had a significant input to. Sure. <laughs> and the third one is simply a link to the how do we get the right result, the awarding guidance, which I mentioned earlier. Fantastic. That That's brilliant. Well, Trevor, that has been an absolutely amazing insight to how questions are written, how papers are put together, how marking happens, grade boundaries. And that, yeah, that has just been fascinating. And it's my, the re- main reason I wanted to have you on is it, it's been a, a real tricky two years, I think, for teachers and um, getting this kind of first cohort through. And this to be at the end at the time of recording we're just awaiting result results coming out and it's just been fascinating to hear it from your perspective someone who's been yeah leading the way of, of writing this so thank you so much for for sharing and all your thoughts and your expertise with us trevor thank you very much you're very kind
So, there you have it. There was my interview with AQA's Chief Examiner for GCSE Maths, Trevor Senior. I really hope you enjoyed that one and got as much out of it as I did. I've got two main takeaways based on my conversation with Trevor. The first is an obvious one, but one I really think needs making. And that is, exams are flipping hard to write. Did you hear the depth that Trevor went into about the process involved in writing, checking the amount of drafts that come into play? If a team of examiners struggle so much, then what hope is there for us teachers writing our own exams? Now, those of you who've listened to my interview with Daisy Christodoulou or read her wonderful book, Making Good Process, will uh, progress, sorry, will know all about the complexities involved in writing good assessments. You've got the whole issue of whether they're formative or summative or somewhere in between. Then you've got the issue of whether it's covering all the assessment objectives, AO1, AO2, AO3, let alone the content itself. And then I absolutely loved Trevor's point about question modifiers. I never thought about this before. Scoring questions not on the difficulty of the content, but on considerations such as literacy demands, whether there are any ambiguities in there, the numbers involved, and so on. And then even if you build your own questions using something like ExamPro, so you know they've been accredited and professionally written, then you've still got the issue of choosing the correct order and making sure you've got the right curriculum coverage. And then, just to make life even more difficult, you've got the distinction between performance and understanding that's become a recurring theme in recent episodes of this podcast. And that is, if you decide to give your assessment to students immediately having taught them a given topic, then are you going to be measuring performance or are you going to be measuring understanding when you do, when you get that test. So all of this just makes me think we've got to be very, very, very wary about making any kind of big inferences from the results that we get to the assessments that we write for our students. Assessments are hard to write. There are so many considerations to come into play. And yet, when we give assessments to our kids, we base big decisions on it, whether it be set changes, reports, targets, all the tiers of entry, all that kind of stuff. So just a word of warning to myself, more than anything, let's be really careful when using assessments with our students. And as I say, I recommend checking out the Daisy um, episode where we discuss possible solutions to that. And secondly, my big, big one from this is everyone should try marking exams. Just sign yourself up, whether it's AQA, Edexcel, OCR, WJC, whoever, sign yourself up to be an exam marker. I'll be honest, you're not going to make a million pounds from it or anything, but you're going to learn a ton. It's so, so useful for you as a teacher to be marking exams. It just gives you such an insight into how students think, how they approach questions, good approaches, successful approaches. But on top of that, it's so useful for your students. One of my colleagues, Colm, he's marked for Edexcel um, this year and during the marking process, he's then been able to go to his year 10s, who are obviously studying for GCSE for next year, and say to them, look, I know for a fact that when you write that answer, you are only going to get two out of the four marks. And his kids are like, how can you possibly know that, sir? And he can say to them, because I'm marking the flipping exams. I know for a fact what's going to get you marks. And it gives you that extra degree of credibility for your kids. And also make sure that the advice you give them is solid and factual. So for your kids, it's useful. But on top of all that, it's so useful for the department as a whole. We always try to make sure we've got at least one of our team marking exams. And it means that in departmental meetings, we can discuss things that have come to light when 
and these markers have been in their uh, meetings or had information through from the awarding bodies. And we can also play the game, how many marks would you give this? One of my all-time favourites. And that's where you just simply project up um, a question and a sample student response, and everyone writes down how many marks they think it should be um, awarded. And as Trevor said during the interview, the hardest questions to mark are the multi-mark, wordy, contextual-based ones. I never get them flipping right in terms of awarding the number of marks. So stick up a five mark question, have a discussion as a department um, over a couple of sample responses, how many marks would they give? And then everyone can benefit from the process. So yeah, if you haven't done it already, especially if you're fairly early on in your career, sign up to start marking exams. And that's just about it. So all that remains for me to do is once again thanks Tre uh, thank Trevor for being such a wonderful, open and honest guest. I thought it was such a such an invaluable conversation to, to have with him. I learnt tons. Big thank yous ever to podcastthemes.com for providing the jazzy music that you've heard throughout the show. And the biggest thank you of all to you, the loyal listener, for, for listening to these podcasts and for giving me some nice feedback and just, just for letting me know that other people are finding these useful. It genuinely does uh, mean the world to me. You have a chance to give us a review and help me try and topple sexplanations, that will be ideal. But you take care of yourself and I shall return with some wonderful guests in the near future. Bye for now.